They say you should never discuss religion, politics or money in polite company. But today we break that rule. Today I have with me Helena Sheehan. Helena is an academic, an author, an activist, and she lectures here in a local college called UCD. Not UCD, DCU. <laughs> Sorry, DCU. Um, Helena is specializes in the areas of philosophy, of culture and politics. And having been uh, many years ago a nun, she is now an atheist and she is... Um, got some interesting stories and an interesting take on yoga. So uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you would like to practice meditation and movement, you may not, I'm going to say, you can visit my platform, kevinboyyoga.ie forward slash membership to sign up for a monthly subscription of movement and meditation classes. And movement really encompasses everything you would think about in terms of a traditional yoga practice but also a whole lot more you can get a free week's trial and then it's 19 euro a month after that and you can cancel at any time so if you enjoy this episode please subscribe on youtube if you're watching on youtube because uh, i just deleted my youtube account my channel by accident so i'm starting all over again so your subscription would mean a lot to me leave a like at any stage if you enjoy the video uh, other than chat and if you're listening on itunes or any other podcast app maybe share with a friend or also subscribe and follow this podcast so without further ado here is professor helena sheehan helena hello Hi. how are you fine thanks <laughs> thank you so much for coming no problem um when, when you came into my house which is where my studio is um you mentioned that you've been up since 5.30. Yes. <laughs> what have you been doing from 5.30 until now? Um, well, first I do all the normal things you do to open a house. And then I prepare food without eating it. Um, then I go outside into my back garden and do a workout for 20 minutes. Then I come back and uh, have my breakfast sitting in front of my computer looking at, you know, overnight news and emails and all that. Um, then I walk into Albert College Park. Mm -hmm. That would be about 8 o'clock by then. And uh, I do 15 minutes in the outdoor gym. Then I walk to DCU and I swim for 45 minutes. And then I walked here. Usually I would walk home and sit in front of my computer then and be sedentary for some hours. And is that a daily yes. routine? Yes. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, that's, that's really inspiring because I, I try and keep a daily routine up now as well. But I've, as you know, I've had a baby. Well, Rachel's well, had a baby. No, babies too <laughs> disrupt normal routines. I know, yeah. But um, to keep a routine is, is so important. Um, and I, before you, you, we kind of got in touch, I was doing a bit of research about you. And what I found fascinating was you used to be a nun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is it? What is it? Your, what was your daily life like? In is it a nunnery? Would you call it convent? That? Oh, in a convent. Yeah. Is nunnery a word? It, it it's not a word that is used by nuns. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what was your daily life like in, in the oh, convent then? Well, I mean, at first you're a postulant, then a novice. I was in three years, so I was a postulant for seven months, then a novice. Um, very, very regimented. 
my third year, I was a full-time primary school teacher in North Philadelphia. So, um, so that ch- that was a change in routine. But for all three years, very, very regimented. There, there was a rule for what you were to do every minute of the day, um, what you were allowed to think every minute of the day. Um, and you not only had to confess your sins, but you had to uh, declare your um, violations of the rule. Mm. And there were sort of obscure rituals like... Um, the penance and chapter of faults. There was like self, self mutilation, self flog, you know, flogging, self flagellation, self flogging. Yeah, one 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 night a week, and um, and chapter of faults where you would have to, in common, declare in front of everybody your violations of the holy rule. Um, it was very difficult, um, but it was the the pressure against critical thinking, um, the emphasis on blind obedience that drove me out of it. Um, basically, it was during Vatican II, but before the effects of Vatican II had been fully felt on the ground. But I was very aware, going into Vatican II and the new thinking, then I was very in tune with that. And that order at the time wasn't. They were subsequently. but um, So, you know, I just felt that it was a violation of my mind, my body. Um, it was an assault on my character, and it somehow wasn't right. It's not like, oh, you do this, and it's for the greater glory of God and mankind. I just didn't believe that anymore. So, uh, but when I entered, I entered for life. It was you know, more difficult than you might imagine. I look back now, and how did I manage three years? You know, everybody... How do you live like that? But that isn't what it seemed like at the time. I grew up very Catholic. I was very serious about, you know, having a worldview and living according to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I looked to the more rational end of it, rather than which was identified with male spirituality, more than the sort of sugary sentimentality version that was identified with female spirituality. So... I found it difficult to be in a world of women in that way. So I found the whole... I, I, re, I rebelled against the whole monastic ethos and left. And then the whole critical thinking process, which had been set in motion by Vatican II, took me and any others uh, way past what the church intended, or even the most liberal Vatican II <laughs> theologians um, intended for it to be and uh, I thought my way right out of Catholicism altogether within a year of leaving the convent Uh, and that was very 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 traumatic it was even harder than you know leaving the convent because it was my whole world view which basically fell apart on me and you don't just you know find another one or live with the emptiness of that very easily I found it's the hardest thing I ever went through, and I've had kind of a few hard things to live through. But um, it was, I, I went through it in a very dramatic, drastic way. What helped with that transition, going from the convent to becoming an atheist? Yes. Well, I was ag- agnostic at first, but an, eventually an atheist, and even more eventually a Marxist. Um, what helped the history of philosophy 
um, I studied the history of philosophy with total existential seriousness. I went through the whole history of human thought as if I were living through it, and specifically as if I was living through a transition from the medieval to the modern world, because in many ways I, I had lived with a medieval worldview. I was very serious about Thomas Aquinas. I read, read when I was a teenager. I read the Summa Theologica, you know. Um, so it was a medieval worldview in many respects. Mm. Um, so I I went through you know that as a you know very personal transition, and um, I went through a very heavy existentialist phase. And existentialism is was not a philosophy I could live through with for my whole life, but it was definitely a philosophy that helped me through that transition. Especially, do you know Camus, the myth of Sisyphus? No. The image of Sisyphus rolling the rock up the hill. Oh yeah, and just finding the joy of the struggle uh, in the struggle itself, mm-hmm. the meaning of life in life itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that got me through that mm-hmm. period. Um, but like I, I grew up with a very systemic way of thinking. Catholicism was a very systematized, coherent worldview, and existentialism. And all the other, you know, a lot of the other contemporary philosophies on the table were very anti-systemic. And I wanted um, a systemic worldview. And you can't just put that in place very quickly. I'd say it took me the best part of a decade to work that out. Mm -hmm. I didn't just take it off the shelf. But I worked out a worldview that was naturalistic, processive, um, you know, well grounded and yet holistic. Well, but you mentioned you mentioned Marxism there, and similar to the word communism, maybe maybe it's because I, I'm I and we are heavily influenced by American culture. When I hear those words, I think ne- uh, have negative connotations to them in my head. Um, but maybe it's because I don't understand them, and. What what is Marxism? Well, I grew up with, you know, those negative connotations that you have to the power of ten. I grew up in Cold War America. Mm. And communism uh, was not only the political enemy, it was a kind of ontological evil. And I believed that. I accepted that. Um, And also the world I grew up in, it it was very homogeneous. You know, I went to Catholic schools and Catholic neighbours, and it was very enclosed. And um, I never knew anybody on the left. I never knew a communist. Um, And I, they were very marginalised in American culture. But, like, I watched the Army McCarthy hearings and, you know, all of that. There was a witch hunt against them. But, like, it's that they were all somehow, you know, dark and evil and Russian not really American. Mm. Um, or, China, so, or Chinese. When I hear communism, I think Chinese. Now, yeah. Even though I've been to China a few times. Yeah. But sorry, go on. Lucky you. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, I had to get beyond all of that. And I didn't, when I went to the left, I didn't immediately become a communist. Um, but, you know, the left itself changed by the 1960s. In the 30s, uh, the left was either communist parties or social democratic parties. In America, it was, you know, the left was communist parties. There wasn't really much of a social democratic um, movement as there is in Europe. Um, 
so by the time I came to the left, the whole new left thing of the 1960s was um, in its prime. And I, I remember just after I came out of the convent, I saw Tom Hayden being interviewed on television. And, like, he just... In, he, You know how it is when somebody articulates a position that you are just on the verge yeah. of <laughs> getting to yourself. It's magic. Yeah. It was what I was just ready to think. Yeah. You know, and it was basically he's a very he was a very articulate, intelligent um embodiment of the whole new left worldview, the best of the, the new left at that time. So I thought, yeah, this is me. You know, the whole analysis of, you know, my generation and the world we grew up in and how we saw it now and the questioning of it. And it was this atmosphere where everything was questioned. Everything was up for grabs. Nothing that you had assumed all of your life could still be assumed. And we talked long into the night about everything. So that was very heady. And I became utterly and totally part of that. And uh, but still anti-communist, you know, they were still these sort of dark people. And, you know, uh, socialism was behind this iron curtain and people were all very regimented. They led these very gray lives and couldn't get out and all mm. that. So I didn't immediately question that. But like it was an atmosphere quest for questioning everything. And I did eventually have to question that. Mm. Um, but uh, in my early years in the left, um, I was really part of the new left that wasn't, you know, that wasn't going to come around that easily to the old left. It's only when I came to live in Europe uh, that I really began to understand the old left um, and the communist movement and the social democratic movement. And um, when I first came here, I was in um, the official, official Sinn Féin IRA. Mm. But they were moving towards Marxism at the time. There's a big debate about Marxism. Um, and I became part of that debate. Just before I left the States, it was a big debate in my circles between Marxism and anarchism, and I was on the anarchist side. But when I came here, I re, you know, I, you know, thought it through further, and I, I eventually became a Marxist. My first year here in Ireland, I became a Marxist. All I know is that it, it was start, uh, the theories from Karl Marx, but that's it. So if you were to explain it, someone in, say, like layman's terms, <coughs> like me, <laughs> someone who is not as not that well read, um, we're like, what, what's the principle of being a Marxist? Okay, well, first it's analysis of capitalism. You know, what is capitalism? You know, I grew up in a world where I lived in capitalism but didn't really have a concept of it. Um, I lived in a world, in a country that tr trampled all over the world but didn't have any concept of imperialism until the Vietnam War. You know, and I had to, you know, take the other side on that. Um, so... Uh, first of all, it's an, an analysis of capitalism as a system. And basically, when you look at everything that there is in the world, everything, absolutely everything that's of value comes from either the natural world or human labor, usually from some kind of interaction between the natural world and human labor. There is no other way to create value except you know, through the natural world or human labor. So given that, why do some people have so much and some people have so little? Everybody only has 24 hours in the day. Mm. And how have some people managed to accumulate so much wealth, you know, well beyond what, you know, monarchs in the past could ever in their whole life spend? How is that? You know, how is that wealth expropriated? And, you know, it came to see that, you know, so much of the wealth of the world 
that belongs to the many, particularly to those who labour, is expropriated by a lot of people who don't really do much in the way of labour. Even, you know, these high, um, these celebrity entrepreneurs, I mean, they still only have so many hours in the day. And like, you know, how does Jeff Bezos or, you know, any of these, how, how, what is the justification of them having so much more wealth than the people that work in the Amazon warehouses or the authors that write the books for that matter? Mm. You know, so it's a, a questioning of how capitalism works as a, a system. Mm. Um and, and how that affects education and healthcare, like during the pandemic. You know, capitalism is the worst possible system to live under um, because what's, what's needed is for everything to be prioritized for, for in, 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 in um, the interests of public health. And actually, you know, even in countries where in the whole world system dominated by capitalism, there was this temporary reversion to the principles of socialism, where public health, you know, trumped all other considerations. Mm. And then all this messy thing where, you know, we're in a transition back to, you know, the normal thing where it doesn't. Mm. Um, and uh, the, the problems of having um, both therapeutic and preventative um, solutions to it in the hands of big of big pharmaceutical companies and the injustice of the state the state being us subsidizing big pharma um which will be um sort of socializing the the risks and privatizing the profits of it it's a very dangerous situation to live under capitalism during a pandemic and the countries that have dealt best with the pandemic are countries like China, Cuba, Vietnam, and um, the Communist Party of India called Kerala. Really, have they? Yes. Interesting. Yes. Because, you know, one, one of the things that, you know, I've reflected on often, you know, during the pandemic, and particularly during the messy period, you know, out of the lockdown, where we have all these anti-mask protesters on the street and everything, is I would like to live in, in a society with greater social discipline. Twice I had confrontations on Ballymun Road with young men spitting, spitting during the, and I would just say very simply on, on on one occasion I said you're spitting on the ground during a pandemic I didn't scream or anything and he said shut up you old I didn't catch the final word but you know I'm sure you can imagine and then the second time I said it to another young fellow and he just spat at me didn't hit, hit me but you know it was just a gesture of defiance and like if there had been a guard there you know hmm. I, would, I would like him to have been taken off but like i just think it's but it's not it's not it's not the guards aren't the answer to that uh, it might be a temporary answer but you know they're not really the answer um there are all these people on the street like in the name of their individual liberty you know uh as if that's more important than public health and also um also define the science you know the the the, the irrationality of it the lack of respect for science um, is is very worrying thing, and and it's becoming quite widespread. But anyway, the, no, so, so no. I want to finish the answer oh, yeah, to that sorry. first. So, you know, so the, you know the the other big part of you know Marxism is that their alternative to that is socialism, and socialism is a society uh, that's built according to the principle uh, from uh, from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. What does, um, that, what does that mean? Sorry. Um, that people contribute to the society. They contribute their work. Yeah. 
and they get from it what they need in the way of education, health care. Okay. Now, it's modified. You know, not everybody, you know, we, there's, there's also a modification from each according to their work. Mm. And like, okay, everybody is, is equal in their educational opportunities and their access to health care. But when it comes to, you know, living above a certain level, then, you know, if you work above a certain level, you, you know, you get more. But not fabulously more. Mm. Okay. You know, you know, see, all of this is, is being approached from an angle I've never even considered because all of my life I've been thought that capitalism is freedom, it's the way forward, for prog progression is good. And that word progression gets used lazily sometimes. I, um, I'm realising now as I get older that you could say with capitalism a good thing potentially is that... Um, there's innovation you know there's a, a drive to mm -hmm. keep the, the next thing coming out and to keep moving forward but the question is is that making us happier uh also if you i i've always worked in companies where there's been a hierarchy and that seems to be the logical approach to running a company and therefore i would see that a hierarchy is the best way the only way but the the problem is with having a hierarchy is that in society or a company is the people at the bottom get di uh, dispossessed or disenfranchised mm -hmm. And they get forgotten about. And as you said, when the I was going to say, when things go belly up, <laughs> and we have a pandemic, it shows me. I think that the uh, the lack of maybe nationalism nationalism is the wrong word, but uh, I know I lived in Korea for a little while, and in Korea and China, for example, people listen to the government, or people do. There's a more of a sense of responsibility to the country and to the community than we have here i'm not saying one is right one is wrong but we could learn a lot from those cultures also um but then it's it's i think again with the free free media and having the internet and having information and not it being um the sources not being checked people seem to rebel against the government and think about these conspiracy theories etc so i i don't know um what, why, what I'm trying to get at is why do you think people are resistant to things like Marxism? Uh, I'm talking now specifically in Ireland because I think, I know you, you, know, uh, you were born in America and you lived in America for a long time, but I, and I, I, we have a lot of I have American listeners and no offense to the Americans that are listening, but I think we're too heavily influenced by American culture. I think that Hollywood influences a lot as well. And some things are great, some things are not so great. So my question is, why... I forgot what my question was. Well, okay, you, you started off about... I started know, off so good, didn't I? No, no, it's, it's very cool here. <laughs> you started off about capitalism and, and freedom and innovation. Yeah. And you might be very surprised if you ever read the Communist Manifesto. Okay. Because in some ways it's like full of enthusiastic... Um, praise for capitalism in terms of dynamism and innovation. Yeah. When you look at the period of history, the transition from the medieval to the modern world, um, and and the you know the, the dynamism and the mm -hmm. innovation that capitalism you know brought into, you'd, you'd be surprised. You know, students were always surprised to read that. Mm. Um, and uh, the Marxist position is that capitalism is a necessary stage in human development. Um, to free the productive process from the f shackles of feudalism. Mm -hmm. um, but that, you know, the, 
the world had to outgrow that and supersede it into something else. But socialism is something that's meant to be built on the other side of advanced capitalism and to take further the best things that, you know, capitalism has achieved. That is, you know, the, uh, the efficiency of the productive process. Mm-hmm. Um, the institutions of, you know, uh, what Marx would call bourgeois democracy. Yeah. And, you know, freedom of the press, mm-hmm. freedom of expression. You know, this actually is the Marxist position, mm-hmm. even if, you know, the, the countries that ruled in the name of Marxism didn't always do things that way. Mm-hmm. It isn't actually compatible with Marxism to have, you know, a repressive society where people aren't free to engage in critique of the government. Okay. Um, and, and the one-party system isn't inherent to Marxism either. Right. But these were things that evolved in a certain way. They, they evolved, you know, because of being under threat. Mm-hmm. from within without the reasons why it evolved that way um not just because people wanted to be repressive and hierarchical yeah um i think that a certain kind of you know i think my generation was you know always rallied under you know the idea of participatory democracy and many of the movements i've been involved with have um, but I think there is a need for certain kinds of hierarchy, certain kinds of exercise of authority and expertise. Hmm. You know, I don't, I mean, as a, as a university teacher, I felt I had to exercise authority hmm. um, a lot of the time. Um, not every first year was, you know, an expert in the subject and their opinion wasn't worth as much as mine after studying for decades. Not that I wouldn't <laughs> listen to them, but, you know, I'd still argue back and I'd still mark their papers. Actually, on that point, has because uh, I again been influenced by American culture, I've noticed that the American campuses uh, are changed quite a lot. It seems um, maybe the, the power dynamic. Have Def- you noticed that definitely. in Ireland? Here, oh, definitely. In what definitely. way? Um, knowledge is more commodified. Universities um, have been honed now to serve ever more directly the needs of the market. Uh, students, you know, have more more power. In, in some ways that, you know, they should have more power. You know, if students are treated unjustly and, you know, and, and, and marked with prejudice and all of that, there should, they should have the right of appeal. But basically they have this attitude that, you know, students are customers, you know, they came and they wanted this degree, they wanted these marks, and they're going to demand them whether they worked for them or not. Um, and a lot of times, you, you know, you give them back their papers and they wouldn't even read your, you know, your assessment, your, you know, words of assessment, they just saw the mark and immediately came back at you demanding something better. Mm-hmm. And, like, you have to have the authority to stand up to that. And all, but also a mechanism where you can be scrutinized. Mm-hmm. And if the student is right, and sometimes they are. I've known cases in, you know, DCU, for example, where the student was right and they were victimized by a lecturer. So, you know, the power dynamic has changed some ways for the better, but it's kind of gone too far the other way, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Do you think, I, I'm again, I'm if someone's to ask me politically where I stand, right or left, right. I don't know. Really? I, I, I really don't know because I never <clears throat> thought about politics much until actually this year. I, I feel like the world has become, which is probably baffling for you. That it someone is can baffling make it, to make me. it 38 years. Because it structures your life. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I suppose I've always been conscious about picking, I feel like I'm picking a team. And therefore being defined as that. Um, like I uh, uh, watching things uh, on, on, on online 
have seen this battle now between the left and the right. It seems uh, like which is very was very uh, highlighted this week with the presidential debate. But that wasn't left and right. Oh, no, was, it, was it was it right and right? Yeah. Okay, right. To me, yeah. <laughs> to you, yeah. Um, Centre-right and far-right. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Um, but um, <laughs> just un- for, to help uh, me understand... Um, I w- you see, I suppose I have some views that are maybe centre-right and some that are centre-left. Like I have an electric car and I recycle. Is that quite left? <laughs> you know, I care about the, com- the community. Um, but maybe my my capitalist attitude towards life is quite um but what what is your capitalist attitude to life Um, that you want to hold on to okay is that um well this is influenced as well by being a complete failure at school and not and being like a really slow learner uh i feel like every day i have to strive to uh be successful i i to um to to do better to but i feel like that yeah so and i'm a marxist <laughs> there's nothing capitalist about that depends on how you define success okay well how do you define capitalism um the priority of of the profit motive over all other uh the the, the prioritization of the market over all other social forces Okay, all right. So I'm not a capitalist, then. <laughs> um, but I, I think m- m- maybe there there is an importance for to be to have right and left, but to have constant dialogue between the two and to borrow certain principles from each other. Um, and just on that, because it is topical, and since we did mention it, uh, what what were your thoughts on the presidential presidential debate? I didn't watch the whole thing. I only saw the clips that were, you know, on the news afterwards. Um, it would, it, it, I mean, to watch it would just be like to watch children in a schoolyard. <laughs> yeah. um, it really was a mess from yeah. all accounts and from the bits I heard. Um, I think that it's astonishing that uh, in a country in, uh, which is, you know, very advanced and very sophisticated in many respects, has some of the best universities in the world, for example, mm-hmm. um, that it generates uh, a, a contest for the presidency between uh, Trump and Biden. I think they're both awful, awful, awful. Um, and I think that, I mean, the fact that Trump is so outrageous in every respect He's stupid, he's deceitful, he's crass, he's exploitative, he's just everything negative you could say. Uh, He's totally incompetent. Um, He, but it's, it's not just Trump as a person. It's a society that produces Trump and elects him as president and want to elect him again, a substantial number of people a substantial section of that society. It's a phenomenon, not a person. And uh, if I look back on all of the presidents of the United States from, you know, the time I became conscious, which is basically Eisenhower is the first one I remember, um, okay, a lot of life goes on, no matter who's president of the United States. But, like, I look back and, like, it was symbolic of the times who became president. It was, it reflected something from under. And so what does this reflect? Mm. That, you know, Trump became president and the alternative is Biden. Um, 
The alternative should have been Sanders. That was that would be a real alternative. Um, but um, it's my answer is what does it, to what the question what does it mean? Trump is a morbid symptom of a system in decline. It is deeply systemic. It is a society falling apart. This is utterly different than the society I grew up in. Now, I don't idealize that society, which, you know, was strong, believed in itself. I mean, I, you know, it was a worldview that fell apart, not only, you know, the, the worldview represented by the church, but by the state as well. I don't, don't believe I, I By the time I was in my early 20s, I didn't believe in any of that anymore. Um, and I think, you know, that was based on false beliefs. Mm. Nevertheless, it's completely different. It's completely incoherent, out of control. The things that I the things that I see on television, especially the Vox Pops, this is a society that looks to be on the verge of some kind of civil war, not like the civil war in the past, but definitely with guns. I mean, because the right is you know um, has been arming for decades. They, they you know private homes um, are full of arsenals. And it's it's mainly on the right. Um, I, I many most Americans I know have guns, mm. uh, and more than one. Um, and you know people are coming out into the streets with these um, anti public health um, protests with assault rifles and paramilitary gear. Mm. So it's it's definitely a society in, in decline. How do you think Ireland is doing then? I, I know more about American yeah. politics than I do Irish yeah. politics. Well, I think that for, like for, uh, during the pandemic, for example, I think Ireland has been either the best or the worst place to be. Um, it was certainly better than Britain or America, which were both a shambles. Mm. Uh, I think that you know Johnson, Boris Johnson also is a morbid symptom of a society in decline. Um, he's very like Trump, you know posher and better educated but he's very <laughs> he's very very like trump yeah he doesn't he doesn't actually give a damn about any of it yeah and neither of them do seems like a joke to boris oh yeah 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 you know it's just an extension of you know public school you know wanting to be head boy but no idea what to do with it mm. um and not caring either um so so it was it was neither britain nor america or brazil for that matter or India, you know, places where places where right wing governments were in control did the worst. But again, it wasn't China, or Vietnam, or Cuba, or Kerala, which did best. Like, because you know, public health priorities absolutely came first, and you know, everything, you know, was in line behind that. I think our government. Um, I think a lot of people overpraise them. Um, these are the same people. Fine Gael was the dominant government, um, but Fianna Fáil are also very implicated in, in running down public health systems that were inadequate to our needs. Um, but they um, they followed WHO guidelines. I think the WHO is exactly what the world needs. Well, I mean, exactly the idea of the WHO, anyway. Um, the WHO, you know, has has a whole history of you know this and that and being too much dominated by America and by big pharma. Um, however, you know there was a struggle for power over the years in the WHO, and the the candidate who actually won the position of director general was the candidate of the African Union 
and backed by China rather than the one backed by, you know, Britain and America. Mm. So, like, you know, America is, you know, losing control of that. And, you know, you've seen Trump lash, I mean, to lash out at the WHO in a time of pandemic. And, that you know, I'd be critical of the WHO. Their advice on, you know, masks in the very beginning, you know, wasn't right. Mm. And the Irish government as well, that wasn't right. Because if they said, look, there's a shortage of PPE and we badly need, you know, all the, you know, the the masks that can be manufactured for 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 health workers and the rest of you make your own mm. but to say like the advice is you know the the evidence isn't for you know that that masks in the general population do any good and then they reverse that mm. correctly in the end um and one of the the moment i was most the moment i was really pleased with the irish government was when um, uh, Trump announced they were withdrawing funding from the WHO and the Irish government increased its contribution. First of all, criticised that, um, stood by the WHO and increased our contribution. Now, on the scale of things, that's not a lot of money, but like I was really proud of Ireland mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. Um, but they, they paid to... They, the whole thing about, you know, making all... All health care for all conditions, public and free, to commandeer, you know, the private hospitals into the public health system. That was right. Only they paid too high a price. The, 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 you know, the, the people that own the, the private hospitals negotiated way too high, even higher than the NHS paid in Britain for private hospitals. Mm. So that was wrong. They're too enthralled to the private sector. And now we're too enthralled to the private sector in the whole uh, business of, of coming up with the vaccine. There's a lot of public money going into vaccine research mm. um but you know big farmers too tied up in it i mean it, it, a bit of that might be necessary because in certain places they monopolize the productive capacity for dissemination but they're still being massively subsidized by the public sector in, in a way that's dangerous but you, you mentioned um about ireland not being the best or the worst one thing i've noticed since i moved to ireland because i moved there 20 years ago <laughs> is um and this is more cult- cultural than political, but the the decline, if that's the right word, of the Catholic Church and the yes. the, the 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 fact that less people are going to mass, definitely, essentially. definitely. And I have a theory, but I could be wrong. A lot more people now, so a lot uh, less people are going to mass, but a lot more people are going to yoga. <laughs> so my my theory is that. Uh, because we live now in a world where we're on our own a lot more because of technology, we don't need people as much. And um, maybe we're a bit disillusioned by pol- politics and pe- the hierarchy like Trump and stuff like this, that we feel like, one, we need a, want a community where we are part of something. Two, we want to feel like there's uh, something greater than ourselves that we can pray to or meditate to. And... I, I think because I, I notice a lot of people start yoga because they want to stretch a little bit and then they get into it because of the philosophy and the spiritual guidance it gives them. Um, did you, well, firstly, um, you as, as a nun, you would have prayed, meditated? Yes. Yeah. What, what, are, your, what are your thoughts on yoga? <laughs> Well, I got interested in, in in it in the 1960s. The new left was, you know, very into yoga, and you know, when something's on the horizon. I, okay, I'll check it out. You know, mm-hmm. was kind of questioning everything, open to everything. You know, see what this is all about. And the whole kind of 
you know, physical thing about it, you know, the whole stretching your body and all of that. I, you know, I, I like that. I think I've picked up a few moves that I've kept in my workouts over the years. <laughs> um, but um, I, I, I would never look to it for either, you know, um, a, a spirituality or community. Uh, why? Because I worked out my own worldview in my own way. Uh, I didn't take it off the shelf, you know, I, I, and I have that in Marxism. I became, you know, I worked out my own ideas about things, but then I realized this converged with a whole long, complex, sophisticated intellectual tradition that's called Marxism. Um, and uh, as far as community goes, I find that in the left. I find that in academe. Um, I, okay. you know, I find that, you know, through other activities. I would never, so I would never look to yoga for either of those things. But I understand those, both of those things are very deep needs and, and, and they're needs that I share. I just, you know, find that those things somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I'm not surprised, you know, that, that more people are, are, you know, coming to yoga. But to go from, say, agnostic to atheist, agnostic, and correct, yes. correct me if I'm wrong, is almost like an indifference. Uh, no, no, not indifference. It's uncertainty. Uncertainty. And then atheist is an active... Um, disbelief yes well basically you know i grew up a theist mm-hmm. you know i i did believe you know there was a god and um then you know i went through all the arguments for the existence of god and you know that fell apart so i was uncertain i couldn't say absolutely that there was or there wasn't a god and that that was that coincided with my existentialist phase mm-hmm. but then i thought i have to live as if there is or isn't a God. Because mm. my life was so shaped by the fact that there is, there was, mm. I thought there was, that I have to live as if there is or there isn't. And I thought, on the balance of probabilities, there isn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I became an atheist. Mm-hmm. And more and more confirmed in that. I've been an atheist for decades now. Mm. Um, and I, 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 I don't really, I'm not like on the fence about whether there is or isn't a God. I live as if there isn't a God. I'd be shocked if there was a God. There, you know, I just, I actively believe there is no God. I, I actively believe that the universe came to be in a complete, according to a completely different story than the story I grew up believing. Do you pray or meditate then? I meditate. Um, not according, to, not in some kind of technique. Um, but I'm just very contemplative, very reflective. I spend a lot of my day on my own. You know, when I'm walking back and forth from DCU, you know, I just, you know, I think through, you know, my plan for the day. Um, I think through my work, and my work is very philosophical. I just, you know, think, you know, very reflectively. It's funny because there is a almost a snobbery around meditation I feel in the yoga world where it's like in unless you have your meditation now I'm just this is one mm. um view I've I've noticed you know uh, people like to have their meditation cushion in their corner and their shrine and their ceremony and it's I mean we all do it a bit of signaling signal, signaling you know where people will say like oh I meditate every day and and that's like um a great discipline to do but I don't. I think the word meditation, 
I think you mentioned earlier, it makes things sound too mystical. Almost. I think, it, I, yeah, I think there's a tendency in, in yoga to mystify meditation. Yeah. Whereas to me, it's, it's, a, it's a very simple, ordinary, contextualized thing. I don't need a place or a ceremony for it. I just do it mm. through the day. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going for walks on your own. For example, yeah, yeah. without listening to music yeah. or a podcast, yeah, yeah, and actually thinking and reflecting, yeah, um, and I think, and it's, for me, that's what yoga is—is is, is a introspective, yeah. I hate using that word journey, but when you're not actually going anywhere, but uh, experience, yes, where you're just, and what I I try to do as well is is to question my own thoughts. This is why I was so interested to ask you about yoga because normally people either don't have an opinion or they're they they swear by it it's like oh you don't do yoga you have to do yoga because it's it's uh you don't have to do anything really really well there are certain things you have to do you've got to wash yourself and get dressed in the morning eat (laughs) okay fair fair enough fair enough um but um that this thing of uh this is what yoga should be like this is what you should be doing as a yoga practitioner or yoga teacher um whereas the most important thing i think that society in the world would be a a lot better place if we just had some sort of introspective practice that's what i think i think all all this business about a mantra and everything like you know i just never i I just thought it was silly (laughs) i suppose a mantra is it's a bit like saying and our father is it our father. I should yeah. know that. God, I've our forgotten father, already. Yeah. Oh, I know all the oh, words. Oh, hell, Mary! Hymns. I know yeah. all these hymns in Latin. <laughs> <laughs> because when you say them, sometimes, like I say, you're our father. You're not um, thinking about the words, but it's just the sound, and it's almost yeah, comforting. An incantation. Yeah, and it's like a pet of nature that kind of so- it soothes you. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and but but it's not like you you need, you feel like you need to have one. Um, and I actually think yoga would be a lot more popular if people did demystify it a bit to say, you know, you don't have to have any physical abilities yeah or apparatus exactly to to get to get Mm. started but it's simply to be on your own for a little while yeah Uh, and and to think to think and if you feel bored if you feel a bit sad Mm. you know that's okay because that's as Mm. opposed to i'm going to numb this feeling by looking at my phone or yeah, drinking coffee yeah. or I know people have to you know get away I mean I'm fairly into social media and all that I spend a lot of the day scrolling <laughs> <laughs> but you know there just have times when I don't what do you or even when I'm just preparing food or whatever you know just to like you know think think things through what's your advice then on social media is it, is it Twitter I don't I don't um, I, I'm on Facebook and Twitter but I don't uh, I don't consider them addictions or vices okay. I, I'm very positive about them Okay. Um, I feel in control of what I do with them. I feel they enrich my life. You know, they put me in contact with people I wouldn't be in contact with otherwise. Um, they put me in touch with things to read I wouldn't come in, uh, that I wouldn't read otherwise. Um, I think they're more positive than negative. I've had some negative experiences. Yeah. But, you know, they're very much outweighed by the positive, the, the way I'm in touch with the world, the things I know I wouldn't otherwise know. Yeah. Um, I'm very into it. I'm very into social media and Zoom. Now. I love Zoom and all, <laughs> I love all these things. Yeah. Yeah. I. You know the funny. I'm not on Twitter, but I think that. Well, I am, but I don't use it. But um, I actually uh, look at Twitter sometimes, and it seems like that is 
almost a pure way of communicating than, than Instagram. Instagram seems a bit too curated. You know, everything is because it's all about the image. Yeah. Whereas uh, Twitter is is um, just tiny little thoughts. So I, I can see definitely see the appeal, but I, I think news oriented. News my, of course, it depends on how you're, you've set up your whole Twitter feed. Yeah. But mine's very news oriented. Mm. But you're you're a writer. So um, <laughs> and it, actually, can I, let's talk about that. Your books. Mm, yeah. So what have you written and what are you writing? Okay. My first book um, was when I was immersing myself in the history of Marxism. I was in the process of making Marxism as an intellectual tradition my own. Um, so um, I, I focused on the relationship between science, philosophy and politics and the debates about that, both within Marxism and between Marxism and the other intellectual trends of the day through the, the decades. And that turned out to be a very big book. <laughs> um, and it took me to Eastern Europe quite a lot. And I learned about, you know, Eastern European societies in the course of writing it. And I wanted to explore them in a broader sense than the actual debates I was investigating. It was a very rich experience writing the book. It took me five years. Um, and it's, it recently went into a third edition. It's, you know, a very, you know, very red-sided book. I don't mean the way citations are ratcheted up now, sort of corruptly. It's a, you know, it's a really, you know, still read and cited book. I took a lot of care in writing it. So um, then my next book seems completely different, uh, but maybe not as different as it seemed. I, I got, I started teaching at DCU in the School of Communications, and I started teaching media studies, and then I got into the whole research area of television drama. And I set out to write a big book about, you know, international television drama. But um, not just there was this, you know, this series or that series, and this is what it was about and that's what it was about. I wanted to be an analysis of it in a socio-historical context. What was the society going through at that time? And how was the television dr drama dramatizing that or not? Mm. Um, so that got, like most books I started out to write, it got, you know, very, you know, bigger and bigger. So it ended up being uh, a book on Irish television drama. Um, at that time, uh, which was in the mid-'80s, it was 25 years. It was published in 1987, so it was 25 years of, of RTE. Um, so so it was, a, it was like, a, it was, the subtitle was A Society and Its Stories. Mm. So I tracked the, the you know, the so, social, develop, cultural development of Irish society from the beginning of RTE to the time the book was finished and showed how the television drama dealt with that. Mm. And then 15 years later, um, I was asked if I would write a sequel to it. So I wrote about the subsequent 15 years. So I've written the history of 40 years of, of Irish television drama and also a kind of social history of Ireland mm. through the television drama. So they were my first three books. Um, I wrote a, 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 a bunch of articles, you know, about philosophy of science. My, my, uh, I taught courses in epistemology and philosophy of science at DCU, you know, from uh, undergraduate level to doctoral level, um, and wrote a lot of long articles but that weren't quite books. Um, I also did a lot of research on American television drama and had a book that was about two-thirds written, but it just got, kept getting overtaken by writing other, and teaching other things and never published it. Um, and I got very interested in the relationship between class, race, and gender 
and the whole how these things shape the whole history of knowledge because the whole history of philosophy as I'd known it and and loved it even was you know um, kind of white men of a certain class and who who got to be the philosophers mm. over the centuries and what about all the other people and why weren't they philosophers what about you know women and black people and the, the, the working class um, the people who did all of the work of the world that made it possible for philosophers to to live and to write. So um, I was working up to writing a book about that. I ended up, you know, writing a long article and giving a lot of lectures on it, but it never quite got to be a book because my books kept getting overtaken by other things. So then in the last um, the last uh, 10 years, um, I've been focused on writing something autobiographical, but I didn't want to write something that was narcissistic. Um, I wanted something to write something that was the history of my times, um, the big political, um, cultural, intellectual movements in which I was immersed, but to make that vivid through the texture of my life as I lived through these movements. Yeah. So that was to be one book and ended up being three. <laughs> um, so the first volume of that was called Navigating the Zeitgeist, which is published recently. Um, and that was from, you know, the time I was born, growing up in America during the Cold War, entering the convent. There's a very vivid description of daily convent life and that. And uh, the whole impact of Vatican II, the whole impact of the new left and what universities were like in the 60s and 70s coming to Ireland, what it was like in the official Sinn Féin IRA, what life was like in the Communist Party of Ireland, which I was in for five years. Then I joined the Labour Party and I was part of Labour Left. I came to teach at NIHE, DCU and, you know, what univers how universities have evolved over the years. Mm. So, you know, I had to stop. Uh, in the late 80s because it was already you know as big a book as you know publishers can shift for a reasonable price <laughs> <laughs> so um that you know i'm writing a sequel to that now where i take up the story um in the late 80s where i was very in, i was coming and going to eastern europe quite a lot and i saw a transition from you know some form of socialism to capitalism and that the which i think is the most world historically important thing that's ever happened in my lifetime negatively um and what it was like you know being close to people that were living through that in their everyday lives mm -hmm. and uh, so it went from high analysis of it to the texture of everyday lives which is the way i like to write um and uh, so there are two chapters you know on on eastern europe during that period in america during that period my comings and goings from these other places and living here but basically living through that transition um, then there are two further chapters about universities, about the big global trend shaping universities, but particularly how I experienced that at DCU, mm. uh, where this, you know, where the universities became ever more lined up to serve the needs of the market, my battles against the commodification of knowledge. And then I have a full chapter on six extended trips to South Africa where I got very involved. 
Um, and um, I'm writing the final chapter of that now, which is about, you know, the whole experience of the crisis, both globally and here in Ireland. But that book got interrupted by writing another book in between, which I also <laughs> published. Um, and thus I got very involved um, from around 2012 with Greece because I was on the streets here, but there were more people on the streets there. And the, the, the whole struggle against the global system was sharper in Greece than here, and the left was stronger in Greece than here. And I wanted to go and, you know, be part of that. And uh, I was a professor emeritus by then, so I could, you know, go where I wanted, when I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent a lot of time coming and going to Greece. And a publisher asked, and I, and I wrote some articles about that that were published on the internet, a lot of people read, and the publisher asked me would I, you know, write a whole book about that. So I wrote a whole book about Greece during the crisis. Greece from about, well, it went a little further back in background, but basically Greece from, you know, 2012 to 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very close to the people that became the government during that time. And Is know. that book out? Mm-hmm. Was, that, was that book published? Yes, that's, that's called The Series of Wave. That's, that's been out for the last um, three years. And so then I'm writing my la- what I'm guessing will be my last book, but who knows. Your last book. <laughs> when do you think that'll be out? Um, well, in a year or two. Yeah. The, the, one, the Zeitgeist, um, that was out last year. I've seen it on Amazon, is it? Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, when was that published? Uh, yes, a year ago it was published. Yeah. Um, so if people want to find you, yes, not physically, yes, <laughs> well, you'd be DC, not during but... a pandemic, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, where, where's the best place? Um, Google me <laughs> <laughs> and, and read my books. And re- I have a lot of my articles online as well, um, on open access. Yeah, DCU have you know a, a, a repository called Doris where a lot of my articles published here and there are on open access Mm. but basically if you just google anybody a lot of their articles come up and you know they're on different topics so whichever seems interesting and um and read my books (laughs) (laughs) that's great helena thanks so much for coming you're very welcome great thank you for listening and for watching if you enjoyed it please subscribe please share and please tell a friend I'd really appreciate that. Also leave a review on iTunes or a comment below if you're watching on video. If you uh, want to throw in your two cent or your two pence, whatever the expression is. If you'd like to support yourself, your well-being and your look after your mind, and I'd appreciate it too, you can join my platform online, kevinboyyoga.ie forward slash membership. It's movement meditation platform, yoga, movement, meditation on demand. Anytime you like, any place, as long as you've got an internet connection. 19 euro a month and you get a free week's trial. That's all for this week. Uh, Hope to catch up with you again next week.